Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I am Dr. Shane. We have a great show coming up for you today. We've got a number of guests coming in via our Zoom channel, as we have been doing for the last uh, three months now. Is that how long we've been locked down? It's been a while. My entire team of hosts is out today. They're doing various things. Some of them are getting COVID tests. Other, I think, are just hung over. But uh, they are not with me, which is a bit of a shame. But we do have, uh, very luckily, on the line with me today, Dr. Anu. How are you going? Good morning. I'm not a doctor yet, unfortunately, uh, Shane, but thank you for having me. So, so bloody close, though, right? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, for those of you who've listened over the last few months, uh, Anu is uh, one of those rare um, people who is potentially more of an astro and space geek than myself. There's only a, a couple, I think, in the country, but um, she's doing engineering with regards to all sorts of space flight stuff down at Deakin University. You've just moved to Deakin, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah, that's right, Shane. I've just moved to Deakin a few weeks ago and um, kicking off my PhD. Uh, well, not kicking off, re-kicking off my PhD. And where we're focusing on autonomous life support systems for astronauts. Yeah, that's cool. Now, you've been, um, well, first of all, how's, um, how's things down at Deakin? Have you actually moved in or are you even allowed on <laughs> campus or are you just a staff member at this point? We're not allowed on campus just yet. Fingers crossed, maybe moving towards August. Okay. Yeah, it's not too bad, is it? Yeah. Um, now, I, I suppose uh, in terms of the work you've been doing, though, we, we were talking this morning on the phone as I was driving in, and yeah. you've been doing some pretty amazing stuff in terms of looking at the behaviours of astronauts and and what the potential is for their, their capacity when they're you know, when they're up in space. I mean, talk us through this. You're, you're about to submit a paper later today. If I, I stop bothering you, I suspect you, you're going to get it done. <laughs> Tell us a bit about this paper you've been writing. Absolutely. So there was a request for paper submissions around uh, looking at the behavior of astronauts displaying creative potential in the space environment. So we're looking at astronauts who have been selected for space missions, who have gone onto space and then displayed um, I guess something unique, something creative. Uh, they've solved a problem and they've managed to survive the effects of space travel and, you know, being in space and combated the hazardous space environment that you, you would actually experience up there. Mm. That includes, you know, things like physiological changes to the human body, um, the effects of microgravity, uh, confinement and isolation, which, you know, at this point in time, everyone's experiencing a little mm. bit of. And, yeah. crazy. and even things like... Uh, the, the, the moods and emotions that astronauts do experience. And uh, we have found, like, in the review that I did, uh, that I've been writing, uh, we found that, you know, the effects that astronauts, uh, well, the effect that the space, that space actually has on astronauts is uh, in terms of, like, displaying aggression and things like that um, is so much more extensive than what we can simulate in an analog here on Earth or even with submarinos or others experiencing social uh, confinement and isolation. So, so, so yeah, I mean, so when you mentioned their aggression. So are we, I mean, it wouldn't be good if um, if an astronaut was sort of pitching things around the, the craft. You know? So is there a, 
demonstrate the reduction in, in aggression and so forth to these people? And I, I guess my immediate question then would be, yeah. is this because we're pre-selecting people who are just really good at keeping this sort of stuff in check? Or is there something about the environment that's helping them to mitigate those those sort of negative emotions when they're in the workplace? In terms of aggression, the literature does show that there have been instances historically in human spaceflight where, you know, uh, the, the, the Russians have cited psychological incompatibility of a crew mm. and that the reason as for a mission failing, even if the astronauts did return to Earth. A mission success would be all the objectives of the mission have been completed. Um, things like aggression, uh, they're very evident because at the end of the day, astronauts are just humans. Yeah. And yeah. We, we forget that sometimes, that yes, they have been selected with the right stuff. They have, uh, some of them come from military backgrounds where they've been trained and like, the training has enhanced their uh, original capabilities to manage stress and aggression. And we have found instances, even in Apollo 13, where the astronauts have asked for some unscheduled time so that they can resolve differences between their own teams. Mm. But even having that capability to say, okay, we need some time to now go off and actually work out our differences and yep. come to a resolution. Um, I think that's the right stuff, quotation marks, yeah. the right stuff yep. that we're looking for. And that in itself is an optimization, I think, when, um, when astronauts do go to space and when we look at sending you know, civilians to space as part of space tourism in the future. How will we put together crews? How will we make sure they're compatible? And uh, what this particular um, request for papers was looking for was being able to find a theory that we can apply to uh, humans, uh, civilians here on Earth who are experiencing natural disasters such as, you know, or even war zones and extreme environments here on Earth. Mm. So now you've been looking, you mentioned before, particularly at the idea of creativity. So, I mean, we're not really talking about, you know, whipping out a paintbrush and, and creating a, a Monet here, but we're talking about creativity yeah. in terms of problem solving and innovative thinking and so forth. So what sort of factors go into that that sort of spark of creativity when someone is in such a, well, not necessarily hostile, but potentially dangerous environment with very, very extreme stress in certain circumstances, especially if there's life-threatening scenarios, uh, you know, faults or scenarios going on. So what what plays into that creativity that you'd like to see in, in astronauts? Of course, initially you got the actual emergency, which triggers the response. So you actually need to be able to respond to something. Uh, we found that in Antarctica, um, researchers will simulate an emergency so that they can develop crew cohesion. Mm-hmm. And they would much rather the crew develop that cohesion in a remote environment and place ground control staff as outsiders to develop those teams just so that their problem solving will be better later on. Yep. And we found this in an instance with um, oh, one of the, one of the uh, I do believe it was the Mer collision back in the day. So yeah, yeah. And we had Michael Foley who was able to integrate himself with uh, two other Russian cosmonauts. And he was able to uh, create Michael's solution, which was able to use the Soyuz retro rockets after the collision to restore power to the station. So things like that. And this was being down to ground control who said, okay, like, do you trust this person? Like, do you trust that this person has a background? Then it comes into, okay, well, this person was already an engineer. So they already had some level of um, understanding of what could be done in the processes. When we look at civilians, when they do experience hardship on here on hut, they might actually not be, you know, have that education. They might not be engineers. They might not be able to um, 
use technology as a tool mm. to, to solve or you know have that creativity because they don't really know what's available. And then we'd have to look at first responders to the scene. How can we optimize? How can we assist them in optimizing this environment moving forward? Mm. And I, I suppose it's it's hard to simulate. I mean, there's been many, as you say, many simulations done on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the some of the Russian simulations, uh, in particular, with regards to isolation, how people psychologically you know deal with that. I know sometimes when I've got Chris KP here in the studio, you know, I can handle him for about an hour, but then you know, chances are some <laughs> something bad's going to happen. If the show was more than an hour, we'd we'd have trouble. Um, but we get through. You know, we get through. So. Mm-hmm. There's been those sorts of simulations, but the difficulty there is always that individuals know that you know if things got really desperate, someone will open the door and let them out. Whereas the yeah. sorts of scenarios you're talking about in space, you don't have that failsafe. So, I mean, simulating that in many regards is borderline impossible in, in a real sense. And so, you know, has there been a lot of um, I, know, I know that in terms of space flight, the ground controller is continuously monitoring biometrics on all of the astronauts mm-hmm. at all times. I mean, how much has that sort of data been used to to look at some of these things? Because obviously stress and the way in which people's heart rate and you know, every element of their being changes when they're in those environments and how they then respond is something that is, you know, is more deeply monitored mm-hmm. in, in the space exploration stuff than in any other scenario on earth pretty much so you know we have a lot of data there right absolutely so actually that data is available online um oh, wow. actually that up. yeah i was surprised to find that because now with the covid pandemic um my ability to collect data from my technology that i'm developing is now limited so i actually have to use data sets that already exist so that kind of data already exists additionally i believe that there have been some um uh, i would say uh the astronauts disagreeing with ground control having access to constant and real-time monitoring of data. Mm. And as a result, ground control now aboard the ISS do not have that constant and real-time monitoring of health vitals. So anything personal, they don't have. Um, if there are segments of their schedule that require them to go, you know, tape themselves to a monitoring device and provide that data, they do do that, absolutely. Um, I actually met an astronaut while I was... Uh, at the IAC in Washington, D.C. last year, he pretty much told me the same thing. He said, well, if you're developing constant real-time monitoring, how's that going to work? Because astronauts actually don't like ground control having that kind of information. Mm, yeah. Um, and we've actually seen that historically as well, in that um, ground control, as per their job, as per their role, they do tend to overreact because it's, you know, they're, they're the only mitigation between the remote crew and death. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. I suppose um, as we move into this realm of commercial spaceflight, where, as you say, <laughs> civilians will be going up, um, there's there's a need to monitor people's vital signs when their bodies are under such extreme stress, especially during you know launch and so forth. But <laughs> um, but the privacy you know push with regards to health data is so strong these days that the idea of someone monitoring your your health all the time is potentially mm. you know concerning and and uh, the other real question of course is i mean what could you do about it anyway like i mean if if you are monitoring that from the ground i mean there's not a lot you could do to mitigate some of the the responses you might see in individuals that's that's right shane because as we move towards mars ground control won't have that constant real-time monitoring mm. which is where the technology that i'm working on does come in we do place that between ground, ground crew and the remote crew so that we actually have an autonomous piece of you know, technology that's able to 
utilize the data that it's receiving and just make decisions or make you know assumptions, but keep that within the remote crew. Mm. Let's let's give the remote crew the tools that they need to take care of their own health. I think that's probably what the future holds for. Yeah, because what's the delay time um, for Mars just in terms of signals? Is it it's several it, minutes? It, it, yeah, it could be up to forty minutes. Up to forty um, minutes, yeah. Which, in in you know, in the case of an emergency, time is a factor. How quickly you respond to something is is going yeah. to uh, result. It's going to really show results. So yeah. I think that moving forward, autonomous technologies are the go. Yeah, I mean, there's not there's not a great conversation into, is there from ground crew where they sort of say, yeah, hey, a new year. We noticed your heart rate was up about forty minutes ago. Are you okay? Yeah, it's like it's kind of the problems part moved on. That's right. And and back in uh, the Apollo era, you actually had a uh, crew on their way on the way to the moon. They would actually undo their um, health vital monitoring. So in terms of, because they just found it irritating. Mm. And that's fair enough. That's where you've got opportunities um, for other researchers out there in terms of ergonomics. Let's make this more wearable. Let's make this more um, comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before, uh, we've got about a minute before we have to go to a break and then get to our first guest. But um with regards to the sort of changes that are happening in Australia, we, you know, we now have a space agency, you know, thankfully, you know, we're the last OCD nations to actually get this. But it seems as though there's a lot more activity now. Are you, are you perceiving that as well? I mean, this is your field. This is your industry you're working in. It must be exciting that there's all of a sudden, you know, there's always been a lot of activity, but it's gone under the radar because it hasn't been under an umbrella. Are you seeing differences in investment and so forth now and changes? Absolutely, I am. I'm definitely seeing even more um, public interest as well. And mm. if we do look at the Southern Hemisphere and our interest in space has definitely increased, we now have Rocket Lab over in New Zealand who are just doing launches up a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago. They did one within hours of a Starlink launch, a SpaceX Starlink launch. And, you know, they're putting up satellites. And then we've also got Sabre Astronautics who are now building a mission control center out of Adelaide. Which, of course, not only will it educate the public on what's possible, um, creating jobs, and also, you know, potentially introducing um, more more people into STEM. Yeah, I think uh, the other day you sent me a, a note on Twitter indicating that I could I could be classified as some kind of payload for launch. Ah, absolutely. <laughs> let's let's register, Shane. Let's yeah, do it. Let's, I think we should do it. And- yeah, odds are we won't be coming back, but uh, at least we'll get up there. You know, it could be the last thing I do. I might just uh, book it in early and, you know, for 40 years from now and say, you know, just leave me up there. You know, Walt Disney style. That's right, Famous last words. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, and great talking to you again. We're going to uh, get you into the studio at some stage when uh, things are back to, um, you know, normal, maybe, if ever. Um, that I would be cool. Be but I think uh, we'd be able to do that at some stage and then we can. Um, we can talk a lot more about space and and the sort of the work you're doing down there at Deakin. That'd be pretty cool. So I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Thanks for chatting. We will uh, take a break now, folks, with some uh, music, and we'll be back in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on Three Triple R. We have on the line now Dr. Yona Nebel-Jacobson. She is from the Isotopia Lab at Monash University in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment. Yona, welcome to Triple R. How are you going? Um, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Now, um, we, uh, I think we spoke a, a while back, didn't we? You've been in, in the station before. This is a bit different. Uh, um. 
I um, I have been on the show, I think, about a year ago and um, talked mainly about my upcoming Antarctica expedition. Yeah, that's right. Now, tell us a bit about you, – you work in the Isotopia Lab, which I think it just sounds um, sounds kind of uh, cool as that name. I'm not sure who came up with that name, but it's very cool. You you look at um, essentially the, the geochemistry of stuff, So, but you look at ways to date – um, various rocks. Talk us through how isotope dating works. Okay, isotope um, dating works. Um, so we um, we know that certain elements have um, different kind of species, so to speak. So they have um, um, elements are made up, or the atoms of an element is made up of um, the electrons that fly around um, a core, and in the core we have. Um, to, uh, we have protons and neutrons, and um, the, not- the, the number of neutrons um, contribute to the mass of that, um, of that atom. And some elements do have atoms with more or less neutrons in the core, mm. so um, that ma- makes it an isotope. Mm. And some of these isotopes are not stable, so they decay over time. So that's radioactive decay, which probably... Um, yeah, it's, it's a very well-known um, fact, radioactivity. Um, and this decay takes a certain amount of time. And because we know the time it takes for one isotope to decay to another, um, we, can, we can measure the amount of both isotopes in the rock or mineral and then calculate how old um, this rock or mineral must be. Yeah, and uh, th- these isotopes are essentially, they have the same properties as the main elements. So if I have a, an isotope of, of uranium, it has all the same chemical properties as uranium when it's not an isotope, right? Exactly, exactly. Because the chemical um, the, the, the chemical behavior of an element um, is defined by the number of electrons and, and yeah, the number of, of electrons, mm. basically. Yeah. And so what sort of, I think everyone's heard of carbon dating, but that, that only lets us go back a certain, a relatively small number of years, as I recall. So what, I mean, first of all, how long is that with carbon dating? And then what, what do you have to use? Because geological timescales are far beyond the sorts of things where we're maybe looking at some Egyptian mummy or something like that. Yeah, that's correct. With the, um, with the carbon dating, you can go back Oh, I don't want to say anything, but I think it's about maybe 20,000 years. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, About that time frame. Um, And we are looking back at the early Earth, so a couple of billion years back. Mm. So we use um, the decay from some uranium isotopes to lead isotopes. Yep. And we look at uh, strontium and rubidium, or rubidium to strontium, and um, we look at, yeah, there, there's so many elements um, involved in this, probably not many people heard of. Lutetium and hafnium is another pair we look at. Um, samarium, neodymium. Um, yeah. So, so you're talking about, so some of these elements then, because when we think of the way this works, you look at the half-life, you know, how, how long it takes for half of that material to decay and you can, you can kind of, 
you know, halve the amount you've got, halve it again, halve it a few times before you get to a, a point where there's not enough left to sort of detect or do any meaningful measurements. So what's the half-life of sort of the lo- or the longest half-life of, the, of an element that you work with? Like, is it hundreds of millions of years or is it much shorter than that? Uh, no, it's it's um, it's often um, uh, many million years, um, oh. or some even have half lives of billion billions of years. Right. So, so what, yeah. yeah, what what has a half life of a billion years? That seems like a long time for it to decay. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, and that that also means that these elements are, or yeah, that that the. The radiation that comes off this decay is is not a lot because the half life is so long. Yeah. Now, in terms of so when when you, you've got this tool where you can you can look at these half lives, what sort of materials are you looking at? Because when you get into when you're talking about the billions of years, the Earth is what four point three or four point six billion years old. I mean, that must be getting into the the sort of formation rocks, the very early stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we we can look at that um, for sure. Um, so um, the the way we do it is that we um, that we analyze um, the amount of both isotopes um, that are involved in the in the decay system, and um, we analyze basically how much is still there. So we don't the, the because the half life is a constant, so we don't we we do not look at the half life. We use the half life to calculate the age. So we we measure um, the ratio of the of the isotopes that are involved in the decay, mm-hmm. and taking into account the half life, we can then calculate how old this um, rock or mineral must be. Yeah, how much of a rock do you need to do that? Do you, is it a very small sample, or do you need quite a substantial amount? Yeah. No, um, a few milligrams. Oh, usually. milligrams. Okay, so yeah, so you can yeah. you can grab the tiniest little rock and um, and do this. What's the um, what's the oldest thing that you've managed to examine in the lab? Um, basically, um, so we we analyze um, rocks that are um, or minerals um, that are um, like nearly as old as the Earth is. So the oldest mm. um, zircons we find on Earth are. About, um, 4.4 million years, uh, wow. billion years, sorry. Billion years, yeah. Um, and, yeah, at least we, we, we can date. Yeah, that, that's super cool stuff. I, I just like that. I mean, the idea of – I think the oldest thing I ever had in my lab when I was a researcher was about five years old. <laughs> it was nothing, uh, nothing that was impressive like that that you could date back so long. Now, one of the things uh, we were chatting about uh, during the week, actually, was this idea of being a researcher in lockdown um, with a family. I mean, how, how have you gone being locked down with um, – I assume you have kids at school and trying to balance an academic career and the whole thing. How, how's that play? out for you over the last couple of months um i'm not gonna lie it was hard (laughs) Mm. um i have three children one is in high school and two are in primary school and um yeah because we were in full lockdown i was working full-time from home and they were in school full-time from home um and um that wasn't easy Mm. um Especially with the young, with my youngest, who um, needs uh, needed a bit of assistance in school. Um, I have to say, I was really lucky um, in a way. So, for once, that my workplace was very supportive, and um, everyone knew that people with 
parents with school kids at home and even even not not only school age uh, having kids at home and working full time from home um, that that is an extra um, yeah um, yeah that, that is extra hard um, and I was also very lucky because both of my kids' schools were really well organized and really supportive as well um, yeah. I had a few talks with the teachers and told them, look, I'm not sure how much work we can do from home. Um, and they were really supportive and, and didn't really give me much grief and saying, oh, you have to do more or, mm. you know. Um, so in a way, I was really lucky. Yeah, look, I mean, it sounds like you know everyone has a slightly different experience with this, but um, it's always good to hear, you know, that um, there are a lot of people out there with the same experience. Many as many of us are having, and you know, it's not unique, and and it's good when you get that kind of support, both from the schools and from the institution. We, uh, I'm assuming you haven't been able to use your laboratory at all at the at the current time, or are you back? Um, we are back um, a couple of weeks now. Um, but so for critical research, um, we are allowed to use the labs anymore uh, um, again, um, which is which is great, especially for um, you know PhD students who are in their last year mm. and really need to get some some analysis done. So we are able to do that now, which is really great, and everybody is so um, motivated now working in the lab. I mean, not they're not yeah. motivated without this but you know there's this extra layer of motivation and yeah. excitement of being um, able to work in the lab again which is really really great yeah i think everyone's sort of appreciating some of those things that they took for granted in the past yona it's it's great chatting to you again um good to hear that things are going well and that the you know the kids are somewhat in order with school and everything and you're hanging in there thanks for being a guest again on einstein and gogo and, and good luck with the ongoing work Thank you. Thanks for having me again. It's great to talk to you. That was Dr. Yona Nebel-Jacobson from the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University, folks. Um, now, I should say, we do have an important giveaway today. This is one that we've done before, and it's for DocPlay, which you may have heard of. So there's a focus. Uh, DocPlay is a streaming service, um, and we're willing to give out a one uh, pass for six months. Um, there's a focus on the quality Quality Stories with DocPlay, they're Australia's most comprehensive curated streaming service for documentary films and series. They span all sorts of topics too, not just science, history, politics, art, sport, music and social issues. They support a lot of local content producers as well and there's a range of viewing for suitable age groups including Academy Award Women's Festival, Favourites and Cult Hits. For more info and the free trial, you can have a look at DocPlay. But if you want to get onto this free six-month pass, you can enter via the Triple R website. So um, have a look. It's uh, very interesting. We've given away a few of these over the last months, and uh, they're very popular. So have a look on the Triple R website, which is rrr.org.au. We are going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio now is Professor Benjamin Thierry. He's from the University of South Australia. He is a biomedical engineer. Benjamin, good morning. Hang on, let me just uh, turn you on. Try again. Good morning. Uh, good morning, <laughs> Shane. <laughs> Too many buttons. Um, well, so we have to especially push a, a long distance button for South Australia. So uh, you know, it's a, it's a little <laughs> bit more com- a little bit more complicated. Now <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, what is a, a reasonable amount of cash you've just been given from the NH and MRC for your work. This is to do with, I suppose, bringing together some of the technology that's around and adding some new technology 
to how we collect and and, um, and and use health data that our bodies are putting out through biometrics all the time. So give us a bit of a, a sort of an overview of, of what's currently around. I mean, people are aware of things like Fitbits and so forth, but what sort of technology is currently around in this space? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think you raise a very good point there that the people are becoming more and more aware and using more and more this type of technology. I mean, pretty much everyone these days... Um, who know of the Apple Watch, you know, that, that can, you know, Fitbit, that can monitor mm. your heart rate and your sleep pattern and, and, and all sort of things. Um, and I think this type of technology is becoming more and more um, commonly used. Um, and I think in recent years, we, we're seeing this transition between what we call a consumer product um, to, to more really medical devices where, where these type of technology are becoming increasingly used um, you know, to monitor health condition or, you know, to assist in diagnosis. Um, and I think this is very much where we, where we sit, uh, you know, in our research is that we, we want to try to develop the next generation of technology so that we can, we can improve the overall capability of this type of technology. Mm. So, so what sort of things do we need to do? I mean, I, I was just thinking about this on the way in this morning. I was thinking, you know, my father has diabetes and, you know, he does this ridiculous sort of prick test, you know, where he takes a small amount of blood and, you know, does this at regular times during the day and then once or twice will give, him, you know, give himself an insulin injection. Whereas, you know, it seems to me if you're trying to mimic the pancreas, you know, it will deliver insulin as needed throughout the day, you know, in, in a normal working body. But we're not sort of mimicking that sort of interaction. We're not using, you know, and I, I'm sure there's probably systems around the world that do this, but that sort of ongoing biometrics and and delivery of pharmaceuticals, is that where you're heading, where you really, you know, you're really doing real-time stuff? And, I mean, heart rate monitoring, mm, yeah, I can get a little bit excited about that, but not very. I mean, what, what sort of new things are you, are you sort of diving into in terms of the information you can gather? Mm. Well, look, I think that, you know, the, the, the diabetic is an interesting example because we, I mean, this has been the number one, um, I guess, application for, for point-of-care technology. And I think these days um, they are much better devised to, to, to monitor these levels, uh, you know, making life for patient better. Mm. Uh, but but the idea of, of having some sort of, um, uh, you know, ways to respond directly uh, for this measurement to, you know, so I think this is really still a bit further down the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. You know, you really need to integrate the measurement with the, the response and the administration of some sort of bioactive. So, so that's not really the, uh, the field that we're, that we're investigating. Um, we were, we were very much focused on the, on the diagnosis or on the monitoring. And, and, and um, you know, I think from our point of view, we are looking at a two sort of technology. We are looking at the technology that are, um, what we call wearable technology. Um, so again, similar to things like the Fitbit or the Apple Watch. And, and what we want to do is to try to, um, you know, to, to improve the, the capability of this device. So for instance, one of the things that we are very interested in is to, to be able to measure uh, what we call an ambulatory ECG. So you mm. know, I'm sure you're familiar with ECG, very, very powerful technology. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and most recently, some of the, you know, the new wearable technology, like again, the Apple technology can now measure a reasonably accurate ECG. But typically what you have to do is in this type of measurement, you have to connect. So you, you have the, the watch and then you have to connect the bezel on the other hand. So you have to kind of close the loop, right? So, so basically this means that now you do need to have an, an, an actual intent from the user. So you, you need to deliberately want to measure 
uh, an ECG to to then basically get a you know a, a measurement done, um, which is very useful in some you know in some application. And actually, Apple has um, you know engaged with the FDA very closely and have obtained some sort of uh, authorization to use their technology to uh, um, you know to monitor uh, irregular. Uh, heart rhythm, which mm-hmm. is already quite a, you know, quite a very fascinating progress. Uh, but as I say, you know, this is still limited in, in many applications because you, you do need to, you know, to, you know, deliberately measure. So what we're trying to do is to, um, you know, to develop a, a complete new class of sensor that would uh, completely eliminate a need. And then therefore we could measure continuously uh, during sleep. Um, which is very important because a lot of the measurements are actually influenced dramatically by, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, whether whether you are at work, whether you uh, whether you're stressed, whether you're tired, um, and this is enough to put off balance most of these measurements. So, for instance, measuring during sleep is a very good uh, a very good time. So uh, that can raise two two kind of problems. So first, you, you you need to be able to do these measurements automatically, and also you need this device to be actually very. Um, very minimally invasive, if you see what I mean. Like yeah, you, yeah. You want this device, to, you know, like something that is not going to impact on the, the quality of life of the, yeah. of the of the user. Is is there? A, I mean, the technology, obviously, you know, there's some things to develop. There's some things that are already not being utilized, and you, you've got five years to sort some of this out. So you've got to be the time. But um, my, my my final question really is around the integration with the health system as well. I mean, you, you know, I think most people have had this experience where they go to a doctor and they've had a blood test from another doctor, you know, three weeks earlier, but the new doctor doesn't, you know, they're going to get their own and just this ongoing replication of tests and so forth. I mean, how much, uh, I, I suppose, respect and, and belief is there from the medical profession of the sort of data you're talking about, where they're used to a certain ECG measurement done in a hospital, in a, in a medical environment, and you're talking about talking about sort of not necessarily displacing that, but certainly supplementing that information with something else. Is is there a big hill to climb there in terms of getting the medical profession to accept some of the the input data um, from these sorts of devices? No, you're right. Look, I mean, there, there is you know there is a lot of, um, of 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 you know way to go, but at the same time, you know, as I said things are moving very rapidly, and, and some of these very global you know company like like Apple, for instance are really, um, really actively engaging with the medical profession. So, for instance, they are working very closely with the, you know, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, with the veteran, like the Army veteran in the U.S. Mm, the veteran um, affairs community, yeah. To, to yeah. really bring in their technology uh, within some sort of, a, you know, healthcare, you know, at least sub, sub part of the healthcare system mm. in the U.S. Um, but, but, but definitely you are correct. You know, I mean, this is, these are disruptive technology um, and have you know the medical you know GP or you know uh, cardiologists who then then go and, and access this data and, and trust this data. I think this is this is the big question uh, mm. and the big challenge beside the technology side of things. You know, it's really how we how we harmonize these measurements with the, with the healthcare system and then you know as we say we, we you know we already have probably enough in in doing simple things. So now this is adding a lot of complexity. But 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 I think as I said, things are moving very rapidly. In that space, um, um, I'm quite optimistic that within, um, you know, let's say within the time frame of this this project, um, there will be a, a huge progress in the adoption of this type of um, of wearable technology. Yeah, and look, I think you've you've already got uh, you know one half of the coin is already solved because the the public are very interested in more data. You know, I, I haven't come across many people who aren't interested in more data about themselves and more 
information about themselves. How that data is used is a, is a question we, we'll need to deal with carefully. But but certainly, you know, everyone, you know, I've got one myself, you know, you love having some sort of biometric sensor that monitors your heart rate when you're walking or how far you've walked. I mean, we seem to just love this sort of data. So as you, as you say, as you go to the more extensive series of data on more complicated parts of the body, um, the interest there is going to be profound, I suspect, and, and very useful, especially, I, I assume, and just uh, finally before we go, I assume the the benefits of this to people in remote and rural areas where they don't have direct access um, will be fairly profound, yeah? Sure. Look, look, I mean, that's that's perfectly right. And I mean, in a way, this this is really one of the main, uh, main drivers of our research. Um, but in fact, more recently, um, as we all very well aware of, um, you know, the current pandemic situation, there, there's been a lot of discussion about telehealth, obviously. Mm. Um, and again, um, you know, this, this is brought back to the, you know, the, this type of, of, you know, kind of a remote measurement uh, or the importance of this type of measurement. So, so I mean, obviously, yes, the, in the, you know, in the kind of normal, normal situation, being able to provide uh, some sort of at home or within the community measurement, um, is very important, but even yeah. you know, as, even in a way, in the world we're living in, um, mm. uh, there's a lot of interest in actually cutting these these direct interaction. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely something that we are looking at, and and we, you know, we we've got a very good network of collaborators that are interested in these um, remote measurement and, yeah. and, and very. Yeah. Um, very supportive of that. Well, look, Benjamin, great talking to you. Uh, congratulations again on the grant. Good to see this stuff being done in Australia, and um, hopefully we'll see some really interesting and new and, and um, innovative new products coming out that can measure all sorts of things about the human body. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. Thanks, Shane. Have a good day. You too. That was uh, Professor Benjamin Thierry from the University of South Australia working on some really interesting stuff and the recipient of a just on $2.2 million grant from the NHNMRC, which is uh, something I have to say is not easy to get, people. They are scarce as hen's teeth these days, so um, some really nice work there. We'll see where that goes. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in the moment with uh, a very important uh, discussion, actually. I think Dr. Jen's going to be part of it. We're going to be talking about a world record attempt that is occurring later uh, this evening. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. It is uh, 11.50. We've got about 10 minutes to go in our virtual studio now. We have Associate Professor Teresa Jones. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. Okay. And we also, oh, I should say, congratulations, Teresa, on being our 100th guest for 2020. <gasps> So excited! I'm glad I got introduced first. <laughs> I know. I just I just worked that out. Sorry, Richard. Uh, also, also on the line is Associate Professor oh. Richard McDermott, our hundred and one guest. Sorry, Richard. You're the Dalmatian. <laughs> Not too bad. You're, you're, you're streaming in from Macquarie University. And we've got Dr. Jen as well, one of my co-hosts. She looks like she's morning, in the Dr. bush Jay. somewhere. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I wish. No, I'm just at a desk surrounded by marking. It's really joyful. Oh, sounds great. Now, uh, we, we have got the three of you on the line because there is a big event coming up tonight that we wanted to promote. Teresa, give us a quick rundown on this world record attempt and what it's about. So um, this is a Guinness World Record. It's really to, it's one of the biggest, or what we're hoping for anyway, is the largest um, number of participants in an online environmental um, lesson. So it's an educational lesson. And the idea behind this lesson is that we increase awareness of light pollution. It's a pollution that many people see every single day, and yet most of us don't even think about it. So the mm. idea behind the lesson is that we, um, we we watch a couple of videos, we take a little test, which is not a difficult test, and then we go out and we look at our night sky. 
it's a bit chilly out there, but it's certainly a beautiful night sky, and we just try and see how many stars we can see. And the point is that we're going to put all of these into a big global database, and it's going to increase our awareness and understanding of how much light pollution there actually is and give us a really good measure, a global measure, hopefully, um, but if not, a national measure of how much light pollution is out there and how much of that light pollution is actually obscuring the stars in our night sky. Mm. So we're talking about light pollution here from cities, streetlights, and and so forth. In in terms yeah. of, um, I mean, you're, you're sort of um, from the School of Biosciences, as is Dr. Jan, and what, what you guys are sort of, I suppose your take on this is that it also, it doesn't just affect our ability not to be able to see the Milky Way, which I suppose a lot of people in cities have never seen, but it also affects a lot of um, nearby species and so forth that rely on on various, you know, moonlight, whatever else to navigate, to do a range of things. Is that is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, our ability to see the stars is also the same as an animal's ability to see the stars. So that is important. Many animals use stars to navigate um, you take the stars away and some of the polarised light from those stars, um, although Richard could probably comment on that better than I can. So things like dung beetles can't even navigate. They go round and round in circles and they don't know. They lose their power um, to locate or geolocate in their environment. But it does much more than that because life on Earth has evolved under a light-dark cycle. Night is really important, even though we tend to sleep through it. In fact, over half of the species on this planet even more of those thinking about the plants, actually don't sleep during that period. In fact, they're wide awake. And so having light in what should be a nocturnal environment, a really dark nocturnal environment, is really bad. It changes their behaviour. We know now that it changes aspects of their physiology, their immune function. And just like we couldn't sleep with a light on in our bedroom, a possum struggles a little bit with a light on in a tree um, next to mm. his bedroom or her bedroom. Actually. Yeah, it's yeah. True. Yeah. Now, Richard, um, let's just talk briefly about what's actually happening with the light pollution, because this is this is scattered light in the atmosphere, right? I mean, talk, talk through what's occurring there and why why it is that we can see less in the sky as a result of this. Well, there's you know, predominantly, you know, ground based uh, light sources. That's correct. So uh, it's a process called scattering. So if you think of a light beam, it wants to travel in a straight line. And it will do until it hits something. And the thing that it's hitting is the atmosphere, you know, that we need to, to breathe. So that's pretty important. But um, it does make the light scatter around. Um, and if you think it's, it's a bit of a similar process as to why the sky is blue during the day, that's sunlight that gets scattered and makes this kind of screen that we think of as a blue sky. It's the same thing happening, but from light sources on the ground uh, that, that spill light up the way, either directly or, or through reflection. And that bounces around in the atmosphere and a portion of it comes back to us. And so that's kind of creates this um, bright screen. Um, if you're living in a city, you'll be familiar with this. It's like a bright screen that kind of limits um, the faintness of the stars that you can see. Mm. And and for a city like, and, and I realize, Richard, you're not in Melbourne, but you know Melbourne's 100 k's across more or less, um, or maybe a little bit more actually these days. How far out from that 100 k sort of diameter is this a problem? Right. Well, it goes far beyond the horizon. Um, so I'm not familiar with, uh, with the Melbourne area, but I am familiar with, uh, with the New South Wales situation. So I work with um, the, the major research telescopes in northern New South Wales at Siding Spring Observatory. And so they, of course, are, are hypersensitive to mm, any forms yeah. of pollution. And so they've done a, a couple of studies um, looking uh, just with, you know, uh, basically digital camera imagery of the horizon. And you can quite easily see 
um, the light spill from Sydney, which is, you know, best part 600 kilometers away, so well below the horizon line. But because that scattering is happening high up in the atmosphere, it actually carries that um, much, much further. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. I, I know when I set up the telescopes in schools program at Melbourne Uni, I really wanted to buy all the school's 8-inch telescopes, but I ended up buying them 12-inch telescopes to compensate for the fact that most of the schools were set within within the city limits of Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, that paid off, actually, except for the fact that they weigh a ton. Um, <laughs> Dr. Jen, what do you want people to do for this world record um, scenario? And, and the record, my understanding is the record is for the number of people participating in an online learning event. Is that right? That's exactly right. So it's an online uh, environmental sustainability lesson and we've got 24 hours to get the most number of people ever. We need 2,000 people to break the record. Mm -hmm. And so essentially we're launching in about an hour and then it will track for 24 hours as, you know, as the night comes, as night falls around the earth. So this is not just for Australia. We want people all around the world to join us. And it's pretty straightforward. I'll tell you the website in a second. But essentially, you log on to the website. You need to spend half an hour learning about light pollution. And as Teresa said, you know, when people think pollution, they tend to think plastic or air pollution. You know, we don't think about light pollution. And yet, you know, the good thing about light pollution, if there could be a good thing about pollution, is that we can all help fix it. It's not that hard. We can get better at having, you know, dimmers or sensors on our on our outside lights. We can switch lights off when we don't need them. We can all contribute. So we want people to come on and do this lesson for half an hour, watch our videos, listen to Teresa, take you through some extremely uh, challenging, not questions. Mm. Yeah, the questions aren't too hard. And then at the end, so you can do that class during the afternoon if you like, or you can wait to do it this evening. But then at tonight after dark, step outside, wait a bit, let your eyes adjust to the dark and then look up uh, and following instructions that we give you on the, on the lesson, it'll tell you exactly how to take this dark sky or this night sky reading for us. So mm. it's heaps of fun. The whole family can get involved. Uh, and, you know, if we break the world record, how cool is that going to be? Yep. So what's the website, Jen? Where do people go? So it is all one word, world record light, and then dot thinkific. So the word think and then I-F-I-C. So worldrecordlight.thinkific.com. If that's too hard, if you Google just world record light, I think it comes up as the second or third, yeah. uh, the second or third one. Alternatively, uh, just go to the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, which is an organisation we're all part of, and uh, you can't miss it. We're yep. all pretty keen for people to find it. And Dr. Jim will tweet it, no doubt, all day today, and I will retweet it from yes. the Einstein Gogo. Twitter feed and my own, so people will be able to find it via that. Uh, Jen, Teresa, Richard, good luck with the world record attempt. Sounds like something we should definitely be able to do. Two thousand people should be a two thousand should be a, a number we can well and truly knock out of the park. So good luck. Um, thanks for putting on this education program. It's great to, for people to have stuff to do. I hope it's not cloudy tonight. Um, there's some crappy weather going around, but just a few breaks. Doesn't matter here and there. if it is. Doesn't matter. Yeah, if it's cloudy, do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it anyway. Yeah, get Record out there. It. Do it anyway. <laughs> All right, folks. Great to chat. Um, take care and good luck with tonight we'll keep everyone posted on how it went thanks Shane thanks for the chance thanks for having us Shane thanks guys folks uh, we're almost out of time here on Einstein and Gogo and we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It I can see that Cam is over there ready and raring to go he looks very excited actually which is disturbing whenever he's that way it means he's probably started his uh, food journey early this morning Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We will chat to you again next week. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And uh, thanks for supporting Triple R. Triple R. 
Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.